Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. In Matthew chapter 5, and we will begin reading in verse 17. And the word of the Lord reads, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never Enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the life-giving word of the Lord. The author and evangelist from Scotland, Oswald Chambers, once wrote, The Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from the identification with Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life that we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. You see, in Christianity, there are a number of catchy little slogans we like to use to remember and explain what we believe. Like, Father, Spirit, Son, our God is three in one, right? It really sums up kind of like what we believe about the Trinity. Or how about this one? You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, which really expresses the truth of the gospel in a very short form. Or how about this very popular one? Hate the sin, but love the sinner, right? Or how about this one that's really popular today? In fact, uh, this is one I, I learned from uh, one of my uh, wife's uh, books. Um, it says, God can take your mess and turn it into a message. Again, it's talking about the sovereignty of God, how you can take our worst circumstances and turn it into something beautiful. And, and that's life-giving and hope. Or how about the, this very popular one? Jesus loves you just as you are. And those are very profound and hope-inspiring words from a modern slogan. Jesus loves you just as you are because, I mean, there's nothing you can do at all, right, to make God love you more than he already loves you. You cannot earn his love. You cannot earn his grace. You cannot, you know, there's nothing you can do in your own efforts to make God approve of you, right? God's grace and his love is freely given as a gift. And so we don't come to God by performing any religious practices or trying to live, you know, this high ethical standard, right? And following a bunch of rules saying, God, save me, right? Because look what I'm doing for you, God, right? Look how I'm living my life. Look at, look, look at all the things that I do. Look at all that I've accomplished, Lord. So save me because of that. No, we come to God with nothing in our hands. We come to God broken over our sin. We come to God recognizing that he already loves us and we don't deserve that love. And we express that by saying, Jesus loves you just as you are. And this is a very helpful slogan, but it is also a very dangerous slogan. Because though this is true, Jesus loves you just as you are, that is not the whole story, right? There's more to the story. There's the, the, you see, the problem with this slogan is that if you leave it alone, it allows us to think that that's all there is. Jesus loves me just as I am, which means that I'm okay. Which means that the life that I'm living is okay. The person that I am right now is just okay. Which means the things that I do in my life, some good and some not so good, is okay. Because nobody's perfect, right? Because Jesus loves me just as I am. And again, that is the truth. Jesus does love you just as you are. But the rest of the story is this. He loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. Yes, Jesus loves you the way that you are. But if you belong to him, he will not let you stay the way that you are. That is the truth. That is the rest of the story. And that is actually the reality that will confirm for you your hope that you have in Christ. Because how do you even know that you have a relationship with Christ? How do you know that that he has even saved you? It's not because you prayed some prayer at some point in your life. It's not because you had some emotional experience in a church service at one point in your life. It's not even because some preacher told you that you're saved. 
It's certainly not because you because of your church attendance. You will know that you have a relationship with Christ because he isn't leaving you the way that you are. He is changing you. He didn't leave you the way that he found you. That's how you know. He will transform your life into something radically different than what it was when he found you. That's how you know. Jesus loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And that is the truth. And in light of that truth, we're beginning a brand new series titled Foundations of a Radically Different Life. And it's a sermon series about the transformation that happens to those who actually follow Jesus. And the foundation of this series is the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, is found in the the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, is perhaps the most read and most recognized section of the gospel of Matthew. In fact, it's probably the most read section of the entire New Testament, if not the Bible itself. And those that, that hold... And that holds true for for Christians, and it holds true also for for, uh, non-Christians as well. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, widely read and widely quoted by people like the Baptist evangelist uh, Oswald Chambers, to people like the humanitarian hero Mahatma Gandhi, to the astrophysicist who is an atheist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And the reason why that this section of the Bible seems to have such a broad appeal to people is because we live in a moralistic, legalistic, individualistic world where people are always comparing themselves to each other wanting to know if they're a good person. We live in a culture where people look at the Sermon on the Mount as a list of moral duties to be performed so that I can prove that I'm a good person, so that I can prove that I'm a moral and ethical person. Each, you know, even, there's there's even a great number of Christians, I mean, non-Christians, There's a great number of people who are not Christians who claim to live by the golden rule that's found in the Sermon on the Mount. And so for many people, the Sermon on the Mount is just a moral guidebook, a guidebook for ethics and and, and living regardless of what your view of God is for many people. But the truth is that actually none of that is the point. None of it's the point. In fact, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is the opposite. The Sermon on the Mount was not given by Jesus as a comprehensive to-do list. It was given to help you to see that it's impossible for you to do what's required of you before God on your own. You can't please God on your own is the point. The point of the Sermon on the Mount for so many people is the way that we, is that, that, that they think that we choose, the way we choose to behave determines who we are. They think that, that the way I choose to, to act and behave determines who, who we are, and then it determines then who our identity is. Many people believe that if I choose the good things, that means that I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person, then it means I'm moral, and I'm a person that, that God should love because of that. But the truth is exactly the opposite of that. Right? Who we choose to follow determines our identity, And that determines our behavior, right? We follow Christ. That makes us part of the body of Christ. And as such, he empowers us then to obey and do good things. You see, we don't obey a bunch of rules and that magically makes you into a good person, right? And then somehow that makes God accept you. No, instead, you choose to follow Christ in faith And he makes you a child of God, and then he empowers you to obey and to live this radically different kind of life, which, by the way, is proof that you actually belong to him. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we're going to explore in the next few weeks, following Christ into this radically different life that he enables us to live. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, before we jump into the text, let's, let's talk about its context. Because always when it comes to Scripture, we need to understand what the context of the Scripture is. As it has been said, when a text is taken out of context, there's a pretext for heresy. So, the Gospel of Matthew, in context, is one of four Gospel accounts of the New Testament. And each one of the Gospels contributes to the overall story 
but each one also has a focus and a perspective about Jesus. For example, the Gospel of John focuses on Jesus as the Son of God, whereas the, the, the Gospel of Luke focuses on Jesus as the Son of Man. <clears throat> Mark, on the other hand, um, focuses on Jesus as the suffering servant, and Matthew then focuses on Jesus as the sovereign reigning king. And that's a really important idea to understand about Matthew because the gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus being the king and it's all about his kingdom. In fact, Matthew um, begins his gospel with the genealogy of Christ and he does so because he's, pro- he's proving that Jesus is descended from the king David. And then when Jesus was born, the wise men asked, who Where was he who has been born the king of Jews? And then Jesus, when he first begins his ministry, as he begins to talk, the the, the gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then throughout Matthew, Jesus speaks in parables. Why? Because he's describing the kingdom of heaven. And then when Jesus is brought before Pilate um, at his trial, Pilate asks him a question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you said so, right? And then when Jesus was nailed to the cross, there was a sign that was nailed above his head, and it read this, Jesus, the king of the Jews. So a clear focus of the gospel of Matthew throughout the entire gospel is to paint a picture of Jesus as the reigning sovereign king of the world who's come here to establish his kingdom, And the Sermon on the Mount, then, is the king's declaration to what the kingdom is to be like and how his subjects that are citizens of this new kingdom and how they are supposed to live this radically different life than the life of the kingdom of the world. Now, Jesus begins this sermon with a very stunning, breathtaking introduction. Uh, And he he does so to, to help us to see just how radically different the life of the kingdom is going to be. The section's called the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed, happy, well off, in an enviable position. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed, now look at this, blessed, happy, well off are you, right? Are those who are persecuted, who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he says, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so you persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, the life in the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is supposed to be radically different than the rest of the world. That's what Jesus is saying. For those that follow him... For those that trust in him, life is going to be radically different. And we actually spent several weeks in a series titled Hashtag Blessed, where we talked all about that and the fact that Jesus calls us all to follow in that radically different life. And if you've missed that series, I just want to encourage you to take some time to listen, to go back and listen to it, because it will actually help um, you get more out of our time together in the coming weeks. But the Beatitudes is the wake-up introduction to the sermon that grabs our attention. It's the introduction that sets the stage for our entire journey through the kingdom of God as we explore this radically different life that Jesus is talking about and he's calling us to. And the introduction then is followed up by Jesus calling his followers into his service to bear witness about the kingdom of heaven and this different lifestyle. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall salt... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." 
those who follow Christ are to be both salt, which is a preserving agent in the world, right? And light, right? A light that shines as a beacon of hope so that, that you can lead other people into the kingdom of heaven and into, into this radical life as well. And then we finally come to our text. And, and, our, and the text that we're going to look at today is probably, in the Sermon on the Mount, is probably the most overlooked text. Because people will focus on the Beatitudes, and they will focus on the Golden Rule, and they'll focus on loving their enemies and turning the other cheek, right? But very few people will spend much time in this text. But what we need to understand is that these verses here, these few verses, are really the key to fully understanding the meaning of this sermon. In fact, without this text, the words of Jesus in this sermon simply just become an impossible list of things to try to do in an effort to make God love us. And really, it's impossible. I mean, think about this. Jesus says being angry in this sermon. He says being angry with someone is on the same level as killing someone. That's what he says. He says, hey, you have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, how many of you have ever, I mean, I don't think anybody, anybody's killed anybody before, but how many in your lifetime has been angry with someone you're close to? Yeah, all of us. And how many are you, of you have been guilty of calling them names and saying ugly things about them? Yeah, we all have, right? He says we are liable for judgments. Right? Or how about this? Have you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sues you and takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. How many of you can live up to that? How many of you don't, don't retaliate? Right? Like when someone harms you or talks trash about you or steals from you or cuts you off in traffic, right? Not to mention the whole thing about, you know, Jesus saying you need to love your enemies. You see, this is simply, if this is just going to be a list of to-dos, if this is just something for us to do, then forget it because we're going to fail, right? We're going to fail at this. So there must be something more to this sermon on the Mount than just this stuff and just doing the stuff. And there is. It's actually the text in chapter 5, beginning of verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota will pass from the law. Not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, this verse is really important for us. This is, again, one of those verses that people read and go, oh, okay, cool, and they'll move on. And they think that that, that just means that, you know, the Word of God is going to endure. But they, they, they're missing the points. There's something to be said about God's program of salvation and, and who God is and who God expects us to be in this. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to take away or do away with the law and the prophets. Now, what's he say? What does he mean by law and the prophets? Well, what he's saying is the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he's referring to. Because the law, right, was the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. The, the books of Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the first five books of the law. And then when he says prophets, he's talking about all the writings of all the prophets in Israel. You know, like, uh, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Ezekiel and so forth. And so these two categories make up really a large section of the Old Testament scripture. So a common way for people to refer to, because they didn't call it the Old Testament, the, a way that people referred to the entire Hebrew scripture then was to call it the law and the prophets. And then as time went on, they just called it the law, right? And so Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish or do away with the Old Testament scriptures. I have come... You know, I have not come to take all those teachings, all those things that you learned and simply throw them out. I didn't come to tear down the old law because guess what? He says, heaven and earth will not pass away. Heaven and earth will be destroyed long before the tiniest piece of scripture will pass away. Not the smallest letter, which is an iota, and not the smallest mark or dot of a pen, you know, or in the King James, it's, it's, it's like a tittle with what they call it, right? 
Not the smallest tiny speck of scripture will by any means pass away until it is completely accomplished is what Jesus is saying. It will endure. It will still be relevant. It will be binding. The Old Testament scriptures still stand. The law still stands. And Jesus says, I didn't come here to change it, right? And to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. Now, this is the point where so many people get themselves all twisted up and messed up. This is where people's theology button just gets switched off and their, their minds go crazy, okay? Because many people read this and they say, see there, Jesus fulfilled the law, which means the Old Testament is not binding on us anymore. Jesus fulfilled it. The Old Testament law has nothing to do with us. Jesus fulfilled it, so it's not even relevant to us anymore. We shouldn't even read it, right? It doesn't apply to us. There's nothing in it that, that we should even care about. In fact, that's the case that many people make who use, you know, who use, who argue that, that say, you know, you see your definition of, of relationships and your definition of marriage and your definition of, of sex, all that is pointless because guess what? You got that from the Old Testament. It's rooted in the Old Testament. And guess what? Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, which means it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything anymore, right? It's irrelevant. It doesn't apply because, because it was fulfilled. Well, really, it's absurd because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. He said, I come to fulfill it. And he says, not any part of it will pass away. Not the tiniest bit of it will pass away. And then he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments in the law and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does does them, he says, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to see that. He said, I'm not here to do away with it, right? I'm here to fulfill it, right? And, and not, not any piece of the law is going to be done away with. And, and those who actually live in the kingdom, right? This new kingdom that I'm establishing, those who, who live in the kingdom, who relax or let up on the very least important of these commandments, you will be the very least in the kingdom of heaven. It is a warning. But if you do them, if you do them, hear me. If you do them, practice them, obey them, these commandments of the law, if you do them and also teach others to do them, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's a reward. So Jesus is very clearly, clearly, clearly saying that the law is still in effect. It is still relevant. It is still important. We are still responsible for living out the law in the kingdom of, the, of heaven. Now you might say, well, hang on a second. You mean to tell me the Old Testament law still applies to us? I want you to hear me. Yes. Yes, it does. Every bit of it. Every single bit of it. Now, before you get upset with me and you say, well, wait a minute, I don't believe that, and you walk out, I want you to hear me out. I want you to open your hearts and hear me out. Yes, the law applies to us, but Christ fulfilling the law doesn't abolish the law. Instead, it changes how we relate to the law. For example, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary is the fulfillment of the entire Levitical sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of all of that system of sacrifices, which means there is no more need for us to build a temple. There is no need for us to have an altar to burn things on. There is no need for daily blood animal sacrifices, right? There's no need for ritual purifications. There is no need even for a class of priests anymore, right? All of the entire sacrificial system and all of its regulations were symbols of Christ's atoning work on the cross. The entire sacrificial system pointed forward into the future to Jesus' saving work on the cross. The author of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? Jesus, fulfilling the law, came to do just that. 
He fulfilled the purpose that he was born to take away the sins of his people. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the perfect, spotless Lamb who was slain for us. Jesus is the final fulfillment of all of those rituals. So we no longer have to practice them because we don't look to them any longer for our hope. Instead, we look to the one these rituals pointed to, which is the risen King, Jesus Christ. Jesus changed our relationship to this part of the law. Now, it's still important for us to read this part of the law. It's important for us to study this part of the law because it's really important for us to continue to recognize the ugliness and the cost of sin and the fact that sin separates us from God and requires an awful sacrifice. But we don't have to practice those rituals. right? We don't have to do that anymore because Christ is the fulfillment of, of that law. What about dietary laws? What about the Sabbath then? Well, Jesus, because he's the fulfillment of the law, our relationship has changed to those two. Jesus himself said, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile them since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Of the Sabbath, he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The son of man... He is Lord even over the Sabbath. You see, Jesus doesn't change or abolish the law. He changes our relationship to the law because our relationship to the law is now through Christ. It is he that fulfills it. You see, Jesus fulfilling the law isn't about us, about, about him obeying the law for us. I mean, it is about him obeying the law for us. That's part of it. In fact, it's an important part to be sure because we need his righteousness. We need Jesus' righteousness accredited to us. That's part of salvation. We gave him our sin. He takes our sin and then gives to us his righteousness. And so, yes, part of him fulfilling the law is him obeying on our behalf, right? But, but also fulfilling the law is about him fulfilling prophecies. That's part of him fulfilling the law which is what he did. He fulfilled lots of prophecies about the Messiah. When you read the Old Testament, you will, you will see prophecies pointing to Jesus. When you read the book of Matthew, you will notice that there's a number of references to Jesus fulfilling prophecies. For example, in chapter number one, we read, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then, just a couple of verses later, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. And then, just, a, just in the same chapter, he says, and, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he was called a Nazarene. Part of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures is him fulfilling the prophecies about him. But that's not all. Jesus fulfilling the law is also about him fulfilling certain roles of the scripture, such as the role of the sacrifice for sin or the role of the high priest who makes intercession for us before God or the role of savior and redeemer and king or the the role of the sacrificial system itself. Jesus fulfills all those roles. And then Jesus also fulfills the law. He also fulfills the law by interpreting the Old Testament scriptures and clarifying God's meaning and intent for those scriptures, which is exactly what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, which is exactly what the law says. Right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. Jesus takes the Old Testament law and he, he, and he fulfills it by interpreting it, by fully explaining it. And he says, this is what the law says, but this is what the law means. By the way, Jesus being God in the flesh, he's the one that wrote the law in the first place. This is what the intent of the law is. You see, Jesus doesn't just obey the law on our behalf, but he draws our heart into a deeper understanding of the law. Michael Wilkins, the professor of New Testament languages at Talbot Theological Seminary, says, Everything that the Old Testament intended to communicate about God's will and hope and future for humanity finds its fullest meaning in Jesus. Jesus has come to actualize Scripture and take his disciples into a deeper understanding of its intended meaning. 
He further says, Jesus emphatically affirms the lasting validity of the law, the entire Hebrew scripture. So the revealed will of God for his people is still the Old Testament. Now, Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And not the least tiniest little bit of the law will pass away until God finishes his plan of redemption. And Jesus affirms that for those that are in the kingdom of heaven right now, we are to both do and to teach this fully realized law. And then he says something that should make you sit up in your chair. It should shock you. It should send shockwaves through you. He says... For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisee, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are Jesus' own words. I'm going to read that again. I need, we need to grab a hold of this and take it apart. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, it is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. You will never, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never. You won't make it. You won't get in. You will not be saved unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees. You're not going to make it in. Well, as our hearts tremble and, and our heart rate begins to increase, we ask the question, well, what does that mean? Well, the Pharisee and the scribes were the religious elite in the time of Jesus. They were the best of the best, so to speak. They were part of the sect of Judaism, which, is, which was committed to fulfilling the demands of the Old Testament through an elaborate system of oral tradition. They were near perfect in their obedience to the written law and the oral law. It was legendary how, how pious these men were. They were the who's who of religious people. They were super knowledgeable about the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, they memorized them and they were the teachers they taught everyone else they were the the educational equivalent of modern bi- biblical scholars and theologians and professors and if anyone was able to be righteous by what they did it was them but jesus says even their righteousness even their obedience to the law even their 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 um, their righteousness was not good enough it was not enough them to get in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, if you're going to get in the kingdom of heaven, you need to exceed even them, your righteousness to exceeds their righteousness. Well, how in the world is that even possible? Because there's no way I'm keeping that law, right? There is no way that I'm keeping that law. It's not going to happen. I mean, I blew it a long time ago, by the way, many, many, many times. So how in the world is it even possible to exceed their righteousness? Well, the key to, to understanding what Jesus is, is talking about here and the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount and to fully grasp what Jesus is, where he's going, is we need to understand what he means by the righteousness of the Pharisees. And fortunately for us, by the grace of God, he explains to us what that righteousness is. So turn with me to the book of Matthew Chapter 23. So if you're in Matthew 5, turn a little bit further ahead. Matthew chapter 23. This is the point in the narrative of Jesus Christ where he is in Jerusalem and he is nearing the end of his ministry. And he has had many encounters with these Pharisees and these scribes, right? And he is now taking them to task. He is, he is like pronouncing woes upon them. He is basically calling them out as hypocrites. And in this section, he's condemning them. And so then in verse 25, he helps us to begin to understand what he means by this righteousness of the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you were clean on the outside, for, for you will clean the outside of the cup of the, and the plates, but inside they're full of greed and indulgences. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then that the outside also may be clean. And if it's not clear where he's getting at here, he says in the next one, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and and all uncleanness. 
so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law was an external righteousness. It was outside of them. It was for show. Their actions were right, but their hearts were all wrong. That's the issue. That's why Jesus makes his point to clarify the law. That's why he says, you've heard it said in the days of old, you shall not murder, right? And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And the Pharisees obey that law and say, see, I'm a good person. I didn't kill anybody, right? Didn't matter where my heart is. I didn't kill anybody. I obeyed the law. But then Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Wow, now it changes, right? Everybody who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, listen to this. He says, if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. You have to hear that, right? Jesus said, if you get angry and call someone a name like you fool, you idiot, or something worse, you are liable to the fires. You are hell bound. It's just, right? And he says, if you are angry, you're just as guilty as someone who's committed murder. Now that should shock you. You see, Jesus is trying to communicate that it is not your behavior that's going to make you righteous. It's not what you do on the outside that makes you righteous. It's not, you're not going to be righteous because you do a bunch of good things. Your righteousness doesn't come from out here. It has to be inside. It's a matter of the heart. You can obey all the rules. And you can do all the right things. You can fulfill the external requirements of the law. But unless your heart is right, it is all meaningless. That's what Jesus is saying. These men do the right acts. But their hearts are bitter and selfish and hypocritical. They are full of darkness, hate, and evil. And so understand, when Jesus says that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he is not talking about righteousness in the quantitative sense. He's not talking about that you need to do more good stuff than they did. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you need to, that you need to exceed their righteousness in a qualitative sense. Your righteousness has to be of a different quality, right? It needs to be a different kind of righteousness, a radically different kind of righteousness. Not a righteousness of your actions, but a, but a, but a righteousness of the heart's That's what Jesus is getting at. Your actions might be right, but if your heart is not, it's not going to matter. But here's the problem. Your heart ain't righteous. I don't care how good of a person you think you are. I don't care if you've been living by the golden rule since you were a little kid. I don't care how good you think your intentions are. Your heart is not righteous. Jeremiah the prophet tells us the heart is deceitful. Above all things, above everything else, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it? Your heart is deceitful and wicked, not righteous. Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Isaiah, God says through the prophet Isaiah, this people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Our hearts are by nature not righteous. So then we are stuck because our actions are never going to equal or exceed the Pharisees and our hearts are not righteous. I mean, we already established you've been mad at somebody before, right? Called them a fool, called them some other names, maybe. Maybe invented a few names. Have you ever hated your enemy before? Right? How many of you ever retaliated against someone who's done you wrong? Come on, little brother, little sister, really got it bad, right? Yeah. All right. How about our desire? How about that desire that you have in you? And I know it's in you because it's in me. That desire to go do good things in front of people so people go, oh, what a nice thing that was to do, right? To win people's approval, right? We do that. So here we are. Jesus demanding that we have a righteousness that exceeds the most outwardly righteous people, right? And then Jesus follows that up with the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, 
with an impossible list of details that make up this radically different life that, you know, for the people in the kingdom of heaven that even the most righteous people can't even live up to. It's hopeless. Who can do this? It's completely impossible. Well, as Jesus says in chapter 19 of the book of Matthew, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, if you start with you and you start with your own heart and you start with your own abilities, you're lost. If you start with you, you have no hope. You can't do it. So we must always begin with God. The only way you're going to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees is to have a heart change. That's what we need. We need to have our hearts changed. But the problem is, you cannot change your own heart. You can try. Work at it. But it's not going to work in the end. Only God can change our hearts. Which is exactly, by the way, what he promised to do for anyone who puts their faith and trust in him. He says in Ezekiel, and I, look at this, and I will give you a new heart. Those who people who put their trust in him, who put their faith in Jesus, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And look at the results. Look what follows after that new heart. He says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes or to be obedient and to carefully obey, to carefully to obey my rules. God says, I will remove that, remove out of you that deceitful old heart of stone, and I will put in you a new heart. I will supernaturally change your heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will make you spiritually alive because you were spiritually dead before. You will be spiritually alive. And I will put my Holy Spirit into you, and I will lead you and cause you and empower you to walk in, in my statutes, I will enable you to obey and to live by my rules. I will, I will enable you. I will give you the power to live this radically different life. You see, Jesus didn't come here to change your behavior. He didn't come here to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. He didn't come here so that you could have this list of things to accomplish to make him happy. He came to save you from your sins. Because unless your sins are forgiven, all of the righteous deeds in the entire world can be piled up before God and they're going to be filthy rags before him. They are pointless if you're in your sin. You must be saved. You must be born again. You must be given a new heart. You must be moved out of death and into life. You, your old life in Adam needs to die and you need to be remade in Christ. You need, by the grace of God, to put your faith in Christ. Otherwise, you are lost. Otherwise, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And if you're a person who takes notes, then please write this slogan down. All right? It's, it goes like this. Good people don't enter the kingdom of heaven. Saved people do. Because good people will never be good enough. Understand that it doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how loving you are and how sweet you are like a grandma, right? It doesn't matter that you don't ever cuss, right? And you never say a, fault, a bad word to anybody and you never watch an R-rated movie, right? And you never, you, never, you, give, you give all of your money to charity and you give, you give eight gallons of blood to Red Cross for people to be able to live, None of that matters. None of that if you don't have a new heart. You must have a new heart given to you by the grace of God. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you sincerely repent and believe the gospel. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you sincerely repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you will repent and 
of your sins and you will believe and trust in the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to the earth to die for your sins and that you believe and trust with all your heart that Jesus rose again on the third day, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and he can do what he has promised that he would do, save you from your sins. If you will repent and believe, if you will believe that, you will be saved. And the thing is, if you are saved... As time goes on, you will know that you're saved. And you know how you'll know that you're saved? You'll know because the Holy Spirit will begin to live inside of you, changing you from the inside out, transforming you into someone who begins to live a radically different life. A radically different life that Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount is only possible for us if we have been radically changed. Right? Which is exactly what happens at salvation. It's a radical, miraculous transformation. You were spiritually dead. Dead. Right? People think of salvation as this, I'm floating in the waters, you know, and then Jesus throws me the life raft. No, you were a decomposing body at the bottom of the abyss. And then Jesus dove in after you and pulled you out and then made you whole again. It's a radical transformation. You were spiritually dead and born again. You were a slave to sin, and now you are free of that. You were an enemy of God, an enemy of God with the wrath of God resting upon you, and now you're reconciled to him like family. It's a radical transformation. Listen to how Paul describes this. He says in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If you trust in Christ, if you put your faith in him, you are radically changed. You're a new creation, the Bible says. You have a new heart and a new spirit. And the spirit of God lives inside of us, causing us and enabling us to live this radically different life, to be obedient to the law in a way that we've never known before, to, to walk in personal holiness in a way that, that we've never seen before. You see, the legalists, like the Pharisees, they try to be obedient because they're trying to make this radical transformation happen in their own strength, and they fail. Christ followers who live in the kingdom of, of heaven are obedient because we have already been radically transformed, transformed by the power of the grace of God, and we're enabled by our faith through the Holy Spirit working in us to walk in that obedience progressively more and more and to live that radically different life. So if you trust in Christ, you have been saved, and you will slowly be transformed into someone who will then eventually turn the other cheek, as hard as that may be that you will begin to love your enemies, that slowly over time you will refuse to be someone who allows lust to take over your hearts. You will grow in your trust in God little by little more and more, even when all seems lost. If you belong to Christ, you will begin to grow and bear fruit in your life, the fruit of repentance, and you will certainly build your house and your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. Your affections will change. Suddenly you will become sensitive to the needy and you will give to them, not because you want to be thanked for it, but because you love them the way God loves them. And more and more as God changes you, you will begin to shine your light. So more and more people will see your good deeds and glorify not you, but glorify your Father in heaven. Not because you're trying to make God love you. Not because you're trying to earn his favor. No. You will do so because you will live joyfully in the knowledge that Jesus loves you just as you are. He loved you way too much to leave you that way. Let me pray for you.
Heavenly Father, I absolutely love your word. I I even love the hard parts, the hard parts to to wrestle with and grapple with because it changes me. It reshapes me. Father, have your way in me. Change me from the inside out. Make me into a person who desires you more than anything else. Grow me. Grow my affections towards you. Help me to follow you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help me, Lord God, to live this out. Father, not trusting in my abilities, but trusting in the work that you're doing in me. Knowing that when I fall down, that you're there to pick me up. Because it's not about me, it's about you. When I make a mistake, Lord, that you remind me that you're the one that's in control. You're the one that's changing me. I just need to repent and turn to you in faith and trust the work that you're doing in me. And I pray that all of us would take heart in that, Lord. That salvation is the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of God. That we don't earn it by our merits. You do. We get it because you love us. And all we do is turn our hearts to you in faith and receive it. That's how we get saved. And that from then on out, if we actually belong to you, if we actually have have been regenerated, if we have actually been changed, then Lord, that you will then change us in a way that that people will see it in our lives. Not that we're perfect. Lord, no, not until we get to heaven. But we will see the evidence of it, the fruit of that, little by little. That's what Jesus is talking about. That our hearts and minds will change. That we'll live less for us and more for you. That we'll love ourselves less and love your people more. That's what the point is. It's a confirmation of the fact that you just loved us and you're enabling us to live a way that no one else would live without the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray that all of us would embrace that and all of us would walk in that. And for those who don't know you, Lord, let them know you today. Help them to repent and believe the gospel. Help them to come to you in faith, Lord God. Help them to turn to you and trust in you alone for salvation and then begin to change them. Father, we thank you for that. I thank you for that all that are here and I pray that you'd meet all their needs. And I pray, Father, that you'd bless those that are not here with us and give them traveling mercies as they come. Be glorified in all we do. We raise up a people in this church who will go out into the world and storm the gates of hell your gospel. We love you. We praise you. Christ in you. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.